0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Finance Simplified, the official podcast for StreetFins. We're here to break down the world of finance for you to understand from a relatable perspective with discussions with experts. This is episode 10 and today I have Rajan Vazirani with me today. Rajan, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, I'm Rajan and I'm a co-founder of StreetFins. So Rajan, you're the third co-host we've had on this podcast and you're the second one we've had that's also a freshman in college. Tell us, Where are you going to college, and what has it been like so far?
1: Yeah, I'm attending the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University right now, and I'm majoring in finance and minoring in healthcare management. So far, I've been having a great time here. Certainly been
0: working hard the past few weeks, but I've been having a lot of fun here as well. That's awesome to hear, man. Now, Rajan, the topic of today's episode is simplifying hedge funds. Now, last summer, you were an intern at a hedge fund, right? Yeah, two summers ago, I interned at a smaller hedge fund in New Jersey. Did you know a lot about hedge funds going into the internship? What all did you learn about hedge funds during your time there?
1: Before I went into the internship, I had a basic idea of what hedge funds did, but I didn't really know about what the inner workings of a hedge fund was like. Oftentimes, the market is shaped by the consensus of these big institutional investors like hedge funds, and there's a lot of research and time dedicated into every single trade. Working at a hedge fund requires a lot of knowledge, not just about financial markets, but also about very specific industries, supply chains, business operations, etc. The industry is hugely competitive,
0: too. Exactly hedge funds are one of the most prevalent and influential types of funds in the world of finance. In fact, hedge funds manage close to $3.6 trillion. Some of the most successful investors in history have been hedge fund managers, and today we have an incredible guest who started and runs his own hedge fund.
1: Yeah, our guest Anthony Scaramucci really needs no introduction. Many may know him for his political career, but his finance career is what we'll be focusing on today.
0: It's an enlightening conversation that will simplify the history of hedge funds the basics of hedge funds, the hedge fund industry, hedge funds as a business, and much more. So, let's just get to simplifying. From the minds of the students at StreetFins, this is Finance Simplified, the podcast that simplifies the seemingly complex and confusing world of money. I'm your host, Rohan Gupta. Most people, even if they might not know what they exactly are, have likely heard of hedge funds. Big time hedge fund managers. the
1: business with hedge
0: funds. The story of hedge funds. Our guest today is Anthony Scaramucci. And while many may know him for his 11-day tenure in the White House, today's episode will focus on his financial career as he helps us simplify the world of hedge funds. Anthony, thanks for being on this podcast. We're thrilled to have you. Hey,
2: great to be here. Thank you guys so much. And
0: congratulations on
2: what you're doing. Sounds exciting. Happy to be a part of it with you.
0: Let's get started by getting an intro to you because many people are familiar with your political career, but not as many people know about your career in finance. So could you walk us through the early days of how you got a career in finance, maybe starting with what you were doing as a high schooler or a college student?
2: Well, I mean, it's not a super complicated or overly dramatic story. I mean, it's a classic American story. I grew up in a blue-collar family. My parents were not educated. They never went past high school. My dad was a laborer. He started, when he got out of the U.S. Army, he was drafted into the Army, almost deployed to Korea, but didn't get there. And when he returned to Long Island, he went to work as a crane operator for the local union. I lived in Port Washington. It was a blue-collar area I lived in. It was predominantly middle-class, though. I mean, there were very high wages for hourly workers back then, and so I lived in a middle-class home. And, you know, small, we had a tight budget, but it was quite a uh, great way to grow up. And there was a good public school system in the town of Port Washington, which I took advantage of. And I ended up going to Tufts and Harvard Law School. And then from Harvard Law School, I went to Goldman. When I was at Goldman, I spent seven years there in wealth management. And I started my first hedge fund in 1996. I was 32. It's hard to believe it's 24 years ago now, this December, but that's the case. I got the hedge fund started. My partner and I raised about $125 million of capital to launch the fund. We got it up to a billion dollars and sold the business in 2001 to a firm called Newberger Berman, which was a New York-based money manager. And then I spent three years at Newberger Berman helping them grow their business. And then I ended up, when they sold to... Lehman Brothers, I ended up leaving in 05 to start Skybridge. So that's my entire career in under three minutes. And I've written four books. My first book was a memoir about Wall Street, which was called Goodbye, Gordon Gecko How to Find Your Fortune Without Losing Your Soul. That was a bestseller in 2010. My second book, was more apropos to what we're talking about, which is The Little Book of Hedge Funds. It was part of the John Wiley Little Book series. They've done about 50 little books. And mine was dedicated to the origination and practice of hedge fund managers, what to think about as a hedge fund manager. And then my third book was called Hopping Over the Rabbit Hole, How Entrepreneurs Turn Failure into Success. So, you know, life is going pretty well. And here we are. You know, and unfortunately, we're in the pandemic now. I've seen lots of ups and downs in my career, but life is good.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned that you went to Harvard Law School. Uh, One of the guests that we previously recorded an episode with was Suzanne Nora Johnson, who also went to Harvard Law and who I'm aware that you know of and was a part of your career early on. Now, when you were starting out in your career and starting out your hedge fund, what kinds of attitudes towards risk did you start out with? And do you still have those same viewpoints towards risk?
2: Here's the thing I would say to you. First of all, Suzanne Nora Johnson's a good coincidence because she's the first person I met from Goldman Sachs at the Charles Hotel in 1988 when I was being interviewed to potentially join the firm. So she's a terrific person, has had a legendary career. So that's a very, very small world. Please say hello to her for me when you're starting a hedge fund, and I would say this to anybody, whether they're your age or my age or any age in between, I think the first thing you have to say to yourself, am I the type of person that can take risk? Am I the type of person that can take failure? And if you can take risk and you can take failure, then you should start a hedge fund. Because a lot of times you're going to get things wrong, or a lot of times you're going to make mistakes and I'm going to tell you guys something that most people don't talk about, which happens to be true. A good part of your life is luck and timing. As an example, if you grew up in the Depression and you watched your parents be impoverished, you're probably a little bit more cautious with money. If you grew up with abundance and you had a period of time of great economic prosperity, you probably view money differently than somebody that grew up, say, in the Great Depression. And so I tell people that they're products of their environment. They're products of the family they grew up in. They're also products of the relationship that their parents had with money. And, you know, I find people that have grown up in wealthy families, some of them can be lazy, but some of them, frankly, go on to be enormous risk takers. Take a look at Bill Gates as an example. Both of his parents were professionals. He learned a lot about computer technology in the high school that he went to, ended up dropping out of Harvard to become one of the richest people in the world. And so he had a very Good platform, though, coming out of that family where they were you know, sending him to a very good junior and high school. So for me, I'm a product of all that. You know, watch my father struggle. I watched my father have no wages, no real income. I said, to myself, okay, someday I'm going to go work on Wall Street. It's only 22 miles from the house I grew up in, and on Wall Street they figure out ways to make money, and I'm going to figure out a way to do that. And when I got to Wall Street at Goldman, I looked over at the hedge fund guys and said, that's more entrepreneurial. I'm going to try that. But I've had my ups and downs. My career is far from perfect. But I think the message for younger people, it can be a very exciting and it can be a very rewarding career, but you got to be willing to take risks and you have to be willing to live with the outcome of that risk.
0: Now back to our show and over to my co-host Rajan, who will get into the basics of hedge funds with our guest. Thanks, Rohan. Hedge funds are
1: very popular today in finance. They're different from mutual funds, pension funds, and other kinds of funds as well. They have an interesting history and structure that differentiates them from these other types of funds, as Anthony explains.
2: So the asset class got started by a gentleman uh, by the name of A.W. Jones in 1949. And very generically, mutual funds basically can go long stocks or bonds. You buy them and put them in the account or you sell those stocks and bonds and you have cash in the account. And what A.W. Jones said is, I don't want to do that. I would like to have something that's more eclectic, more diversified. I'd like to have a greater arsenal of investment tools at my disposal to help my clients. And so he wanted to be able to short stocks, which is basically you borrow the stock from somebody else, you sell it in the marketplace with the anticipation that's going to trade lower. And then you buy that stock back and you give the person back the stock at a lower valuation and you've made your money that way. He wanted to buy convertible bonds. He wanted to buy... Options. He wanted to buy derivatives. And so he set this thing up as a limited partnership. The SEC, which got started in 1933, 34, basically looked at what he was doing and said, okay, that's fine. You can do that, but you have to have very sophisticated investors that you're selling that to because it's harder to understand and there may be greater risk in what you're doing than the generic stock brokerage account or the generic mutual fund. And so they came up with an accredited investor standing. And right now, that's $200,000 of income or $1 million of liquid net worth. If you have that and you're filling out a prospectus for a hedge fund, you're allowed to invest according to the regulators. If you don't have that, the investment manager is not really supposed to take your money. And so he developed it. It grew. It became very, very popular in the 60s and 70s. By the 80s, there were some legendary hedge fund managers, Julian Robertson, a gentleman by the name of Michael Steinhardt. And there were some pretty aggressive, George Soros was an example of one of the hedge fund managers, Stanley Druckenmiller. And over time, by the mid-1990s, there became a mass proliferation of the hedge fund industry so today there's about 3.6 trillion dollars of assets in the hedge fund space my firm skybridge capital has about nine billion of those assets and you know we're a 15 year old company and so what do we do well depending on the category if it's fixed income you may be buying certain mortgage-backed securities but then in order to quote unquote hedge them you may be shorting interest rate futures or you may be shorting treasuries. You're trying to lock in a spread between two similar assets. You could be doing something in the equity markets where you're long and you're short. So let's say I'm a consumer products analyst working for a hedge fund. I may be long Pepsi, but short Coca-Cola. Or I may be thinking about how I can, if I'm a chemical analyst, how I can short Dow Chemical and get long DuPont. There's a multitude of different things, lots of flexibility, but it does come with additional risk because you know these management companies are managed by people who are super sophisticated and they don't have the disclosure requirements that you have in a mutual fund. And so in, in generics, that's basically what a hedge fund is.
1: So in essence, a hedge fund is a unique type of fund where managers are allowed to invest in more than just stocks and bonds. They can invest in derivatives, which refer to a large range of assets that get their value from another underlying asset. They can invest in private companies, which by definition do not have tradable stocks. They can generally invest in many different types of assets, each with their own risks and their own rewards. As we'll later see in this episode, there are many different types of hedge funds that are all unique and that make investments in more than just basic stocks and bonds. Hedge funds also tend to use something called leverage to boost their returns from investments, which I ask Anthony about next. So as part of their unregulated nature, hedge funds are allowed to and often do utilize leverage, which is essentially borrowed money to make investments. How much leverage do hedge funds typically use and how can this benefit or hurt a fund in the short and long term? Well, I mean, you know, it's interesting because on the asset
2: side, you can use you know stocks and bonds. You can go two to one, basically. So you have 50% margin. But on the treasury side, you can have 90% margin, meaning you can borrow money to buy treasuries, you can do I guess eighty or so percent on mortgage-backed security. So it really depends on the asset class that you're invested in in terms of what the margin was. You know, back in the 1920s, you could go ninety percent on stocks. So if I wanted to buy a million dollars worth of something, only had to put a hundred thousand dollars up, the bank would give you the nine hundred thousand dollars. Today, it's 50-50. And there's a reason for that, because when the crash came, they felt that those margins on stocks that are volatile, that could gap down in valuation so quickly, they needed a little bit more equity support than, say, what would be in a more secure, less risky bond market. So, you know, typical leverage, two to one, one and a half to one. A fixed income shop could have four to five to one leverage, but it's probably a little bit less risky because you've got assets that are collateralized and secured by those
1: bonds. Leverage essentially can help or hurt a fund's return. A fund with too much exposure to leverage can be bad, as if they fail to generate the returns necessary from their investments to cover their leverage, then they can't pay back their lenders, which is a huge problem for any business. Leverage can be useful, though, as long as you generate returns with that leverage, as then you ultimately have more money that's earning the returns, so you end up with higher returns. Typically, as you invest in riskier securities, the amount of leverage that you can take on to invest in those securities decreases. This is because lenders feel more comfortable lending more money to someone who has a more guaranteed return, which is why Anthony was saying that investors in fixed income and less risky securities can use more leverage than investors in stocks or complex investments. Now back to the show. What kind of investing strategies did you use when you started Skybridge and how have they changed over time? Was there any reason for those changes? Well, I mean,
2: you know, listen, here's here's what I would say to you that some of the things that we're doing are very similar We like to invest a lot in mortgage-backed securities, and so we have very big exposure to that fixed income side of the market. So what is that? Those are individual mortgages in people's homes around the country that get bundled together and securitized into these large structures. So they're known as structured credit. We have some long, short equity exposure. You may have heard of uh, Steve Cohen. He's a hedge fund manager that runs 0.72. He's been rumored to potentially buy the New York Mets coming up here in the fall. He's a brilliant guy. He's one of the richer, more successful hedge fund managers. He runs an equity long, short portfolio. What's really changed for me is the sophistication of my account base. I think when I first got started, I was probably because I started in the retail side as a private banker at Goldman, I probably had lots of individual investors who trusted me but probably didn't understand the portfolio as well as I did. But I would say today, our composition of our portfolio in terms of the investors is probably way more institutional. And so these people are way more sophisticated, way smarter because they're industry professionals as opposed to what you sometimes find with high net worth individuals. You know, a high net worth individual is somebody that may be making their money from a different
1: business than Wall Street. Now over to Rohan, who will go into hedge funds as a business.
0: Now that we have some insights into the basics, I want to take a look at hedge funds as a business and not just as an investment structure. Can you talk about what the fee structure is like, as well as what happens to a hedge fund if there is a negative return over a period of time and can't cover their expenses? Well, I mean,
2: you know the way the fee structure works is you get one percent on assets, and the very, very smart managers they just live off of that one percent. I always run my business on a seventy percent of my assets, so meaning let's say I have a billion dollars under management, I pretend I only have seven hundred million, and then I look at what my fees are. And I look at what my returns are, and then I say, okay, this is what I'm able to afford in terms of my personnel, the travel expenses, the sales, and so forth. But if you get a really if you get caught in a very heavy downdraft in the hedge fund space, because you are making money on assets as opposed to making the money on a, you know, fixed contract, if you will, there's a lot of variability in your income. So you have to be very, very cautious. Flip side is you don't want to be too risk averse because you're out there trying to make money for clients. So, where you need to be risk averse is really on your expenses more than anything else.
0: I'm also wondering how much does a hedge fund typically spend on sales and marketing and convincing people to invest in it? That's a
2: really good question. You know, I I can only speak about my business. You know, I could say that my business probably has maybe 10 or so percent sales and marketing. I think some of these larger firms that have less retail clients. They probably only have 5 or 6% that go to sales and marketing. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a very ruthless, very competitive business. The performance speaks for itself. If you have good performance, you can attract assets. You don't need a tremendous amount of sales and marketing. If you have bad performance, all the marketing in the world is not necessarily going to help you achieve what
1: you want.
0: Now back over to Rajan, who will go into hedge funds as an industry.
1: So hedge funds are a business, and all of them together form an industry. Jobs in the hedge fund industry are numerous, and working for a hedge fund can entail several responsibilities, as Anthony explains.
2: Well, listen, there's a whole myriad of different jobs, right? From being the receptionist at the front desk to being the credit analyst, stock analyst, portfolio manager. You could be on the sales and marketing team, could be on the risk management team, analyzing projected outcomes and what to do if things are going bad or you're in a pandemic or there's some kind of global financial crisis. You have people that trade options. People that trade stocks, they trade bonds. You have people that are just doing research on individual companies so that they could be credit analysts doing research on the bonds of those companies, or they could be stock analysts doing research on what the equity is like and what the characteristics are of the equity ownership in the business. I think that, you know, that's more or less the different functions inside of a hedge fund. Uh, remember, there's a ton of compliance. It's one of the most regulated businesses in the world where governments around the world, whether you're in the United States, you're in Europe, if you're in New York State or California, you have state regulators, you have federal regulators. You also have compliance departments from the investors. So if you have the state of California as a investor, well, guess what? You have their compliance people coming in and talking to you about what you're doing and what your compliance procedures are and your risk management and your due diligence and so forth. So there's lots of different jobs. You know, I would refer you to my book, uh, The Little Book of Hedge Funds. I list most of the jobs and what the responsibilities are in that book.
1: Now, in the finance community, hedge funds and active management in general have been criticized for lagging the market and getting beat by passive management. What are the reasons for this and what's the actual reality?
2: I think you always have to measure things in terms of the unit of risk that you're taking. So the overall stock market has a beta of one. And so you're taking, you know, if you buy the index, you're taking market risk. If the hedge fund manager is buying a portion of the index and shorting a part of the index or he's using derivatives, he may not have the same beta on as the market. So he could have a beta of 0.5. Which means that his returns will likely be lower than the overall market, but his volatility—the sort of the safety of the principal—is probably more secure than putting it in the market. So I think you always have to compare things. Like if I said to you, uh, "Here's my money. I want you to put it in cash," and then I gave another manager my money. I said, "I want you to put it in Amazon." And now Amazon has gone up ten times, and the cash has made seventy basis points. I can't complain. Because I know what the risk characteristics are of cash, and I know what the uncertainty is of buying something in the stock market in terms of the business risk and the execution of that business by the management team. So, to me, what's gone on is passive investing in an age where there's been tremendous amounts of liquidity and the Federal Reserve has been lowering rates for the last 12 years. That's created buoyancy in the market, and the blind move of just buying the index has been a very good move. It's led to great returns. But if you go back through cycles of history, there's always a situation where that may not work. In the 1970s, it didn't work. In the mid-80s, it didn't work. In the 1990s, it started transitioning again between passive and active. And so there are periods of time where it doesn't work. And so all I tell people is, listen, I can't predict the future. I ask people to consider having a very strong asset allocation model to belong some stocks, to be long some bonds, to belong some passive managers, to belong some active managers. And I think if you do that, you are securing yourself, your family, and your future. You may not get the best, best, best returns, but I'm not interested in that for myself. I'm interested in growing wealth slowly and consistently. And I'm making the bet if I can grow the wealth slowly and consistently, that I'll get rich or I'll stay rich. And I think that's why a lot of people
1: use hedge funds. Both due to the government regulation that you mentioned earlier and the amount of players in the hedge fund field, competition in the hedge fund industry is fierce, both in terms of returns and in terms of hiring smart money managers. What's the survival rate like in the hedge fund industry and what is the life cycle of a typical hedge fund?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So I I can only guess at that. I used to actually know those statistics cold. I mean, I wrote my book eight years ago. I think most hedge funds fail probably a 60% failure rate. If you can get it to five years, then the business starts to become reasonably to very successful. But here's the thing I would say to you as a young person, if you want to be in this business and you're dedicated to it and you like investment, then you got to stay with it. And I think that the secret sauce, if there is a secret sauce, is to not get shaken by near term market performance or near term calamities that could happen in the world or the marketplace. So since I started investing, we had the 87 stock market crash and we had a recession in 1989. Then we had the Gulf War crisis. Then we had in 1994, we had a mortgage team run by David Askin blow up and hurt the mortgage market. Then. In 1998, we had long-term capital management that had a huge impact on our business. 2001, we had 9-11. You get the picture. By 2008, we were in the global financial crisis. And by 2020, we're in the global pandemic. There's probably eight to nine crises that I've experienced in my business life. Each one of them came with a price shock. Each one of them came with a hit to the value of my portfolio. But what I learned over those 32 years, if I just stay in there... When I stay disciplined, and I focus on good long-term fundamentals, you end up being very successful. So one of the big lessons for younger people is don't day trade your career to stay in, be dedicated, and think long-term about what you're doing.
1: Within the world of hedge funds, there are an enormous variety of hedge fund types. We'd say the four main types are global macro, directional, relative value, and events-driven. What would you say are the differences and what do they usually do and bet on?
2: It's a very good question. And so each one of those are a little different. So let me be generic. Macro funds, they trade currency futures. They make bets on the interest rate cycle. They may make a bet on the direction of a country's economy. Uh, So when you say macro, it's the big picture stuff. Um, Something like a convertible bond hedge fund, they'll get long the bonds and perhaps short the equity to trap in that interest rate spread. Those businesses actually have always been reasonably successful. There's merger arbitrage, where you're you're buying the company that's about to be bought, and you're shorting the company that's buying the company that's about to be bought, and you're locking in that spread between the two. So yes, there's a whole collection of varieties and different shapes and sizes of hedge funds, and people have different expertise. My expertise is primarily in the mortgage markets. You know, I I, I grew up. On the fixed income side of the business, and I have a pretty good understanding of what those mortgages should trade at, given the vital signs in the economy. And so for me, that's where I've made my business uh, career. That's where I've added the most value. But again, it's, it's eclectic, and it can be a number of different places, a number of different ways to skin the cat.
1: Hedge fund strategies come in all different shapes and sizes, and macro funds are just one general type. Another general type is the directional investment strategy, which refers to investors picking stocks based on what direction they believe the market will go in the future. There's also the event-driven investment strategy, in which investors make strategic bets based on events like mergers, acquisitions, IPOs, bankruptcies, and other events tied to companies. And there's also the relative value or market-neutral investment strategy, which refers to investing based on a mispricing of a certain security. Though they may sound similar, the difference between the directional investment strategy and the market neutral investment strategy is that the market neutral investment strategy isn't intended to be correlated with the market's movements in a certain direction whereas the directional strategy is There are obviously many more types of hedge funds and they can get very nation specialized. Back over to Rohan.
0: Thanks Rajan. Anthony was talking about how the hedge fund industry has all these different types of hedge funds. One of the more interesting hedge funds is the hedge fund Kotu and they have their own hedge fund in New York, and then they have their venture capital side in the Bay Area. There are many hedge funds that are structured in interesting, hybridized ways like Kotum. Here's what Anthony thinks about those types of hybrid hedge funds. They're acceptable to me. I mean, it
2: depends on who's running them. You I mean, Remember, everything in your life is going to be revolving around the people. You know, I have a friend of mine, he left Goldman around the same time as me, he became a multi-billionaire because he made a decision to go into venture capital and he, he only invested with a guy named Elon Musk. And so between PayPal, Tesla, and SpaceX, he's made a fortune. You know, at the end of the day, you're investing with people. And at the end of the day, you're investing with people's ingenuity and their ability to execute. And you're also investing in their integrity. I think it's a very big thing to tell young people to do the right thing, do the right thing consistently, because it takes 20 to 25 years to build up your reputation, and it takes five minutes to destroy it. And so you got to you got to be willing to do that. And so, yeah, the CO2, I like it. Good guys, uh, Sequoia, you know, they've had a myriad of different funds there. Obviously, Fidelity has had everything that you could possibly imagine at Fidelity terms of asset management there. It's one of the largest, most successful private companies in the world. Um, but yeah, I'm less concerned about the structure and the hybrids, and I'm more concerned about the underlying people.
0: That makes perfect sense. And you know, betting on Elon Musk has seemed to be a very winning bet in, in, Hasn't been in the a past bad decade. trade, right? Hasn't been a bad trade, right? <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm curious to know, how do you see the future of hedge funds changing? And I guess my first question within this broader category is that given that COVID has occurred, how do you think that investors, both institutional and retail, and just other hedge fund managers, will begin to view risk management?
2: Well, you know, I think I think it's a very big meteor strike on the industry. I think I think it's you know, and if you look what's happened to the stock market, forget about hedge funds for a second. Five or six stocks have done super well since the March crisis, and the rest of the. Securities have more or less languished. So I think it's a very big shock. And I think with people, you had a full employment economy, a relatively stable, a strong GDP growth. Now you're in a very steep recession. And you've got probably 25 or 30 million Americans out of work. And so I think it's a wake-up call for people. I tell my risk management team, anything that you think cannot happen, likely will happen. Just want you think about that, anything you think, okay, well, there's no way that can happen. There's no way we could go from a 3.5% unemployment number, full employment, to 14% in eight weeks. How could that happen? Well, guess what? It could happen. And so I think that's the the issue.
0: Yeah. And when you said that anything that you think cannot happen likely will happen, that brings me to something that I think Howard Marks said in one of his memos. He said something to the effect of investors will disregard an event happening and not even consider its possibility. Uh, so much so that they create the conditions right for that very event to happen. Now, with the past crisis in 2008, they were so accepting of risk in investing in subprime housing markets that they never considered a subprime crisis could even occur. And that subsequently created the eventual subprime mortgage meltdown, right?
2: I think that's the truth. I think you, you have an issue of stability. You know, If you believe things are stable, you're taking on more risk. The more risk you take on, the less stable things are. So, if you're overconfident in the stability of the situation, inherently you're building up risk in the situation. Now, the great irony is this is probably a good time to invest because people are very risk averse right now.
0: Another question that I have about the future of hedge funds is the impact that algorithmic trading has had on the market. I know that this is something that's been rising in usage as more advanced technology comes to financial markets. So, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the future of this space?
2: Well, I, mean, I think it's a great question actually because. Technology is changing, there's machine learning, there's quantitative investing now where people are building these predictive models about where stocks should trade and what they look like on a fundamental basis near short interval periods of time. There's also measuring things that are called the residual reversals. If you have a big run-up in a stock, it sometimes revert back to the mean. And so there's like lots of multi-factor models, and there's a lot of predictive machine-based learning that goes on in the marketplace now. And so yes, uh that has impacted the market, you know. And you know, we invest in places like I mentioned, you know, Steve Cohen at 0.72. He's been rumored to potentially buy the Mets this year. He's got a ton of quantitative strategies inside there and a lot of things that are going on inside there that are based on these new technologies. So, you know, that's the key. When you're a young person, you guys are learning that new technology today. When you're an older person, you can sometimes develop habits that are unbreakable. I have an 80-year-old client. He's worth a fortune. He has his assistant read him his emails. You know, he grew up in an age where there were no emails. By the time he got to be 55, there were still no emails. And now there's a great proliferation of emails. He's not used to it. He has his assistant read them. You see what I mean? And you got you to gotta not be that way. You got to progress with the technology. You got to progress with the times. And I think that the greatest hedge fund managers are always capable of doing it. Greatest investors for that matter.
0: Yeah, so that was the final question we had in terms of hedge funds and finance. Uh, but given that you've had an interesting political career, one thing I really admire about you is how you dealt with leaving the Trump presidency. I I believe you truly took it like a champ and really came back better than ever from an event that many might have considered this sort of final nail in the coffin for your reputation. You've really come back, and I really admire that about you. And that's why I feel comfortable asking this question. And that question is, you know, after you exited the White House, what were some of your favorite memes or jokes about your political career that sort of emerged?
2: I mean, well, first of all, I mean, it's not too many times in your life where your last name can be a unit of time, right? (laughs) So right. <laughs> my last name Scaramucci has 10 letters in it and four syllables, but it really means 11 days. So and I think- always tell my friends, you should take a Scaramucci for a vacation as opposed <laughs> to a week. Um, you know, I've seen every meme that you, you could imagine. I've seen Beavis and Butthead. We're on Beavis, Rick Wilson's Butthead because <laughs> uh, we're both anti-Trump now. I mean, the truth of the matter is here's another big lesson for you. When you're young, and trust me, I was certainly like this. So this is not me being righteous or sanctimonious or me being in a lecture mode. This is me just being observant about life. When you're young, you have a tendency to really care what other people think about you. And it weighs on you if somebody says something mean or nasty, or you're looking on social media and you're getting ripped up by somebody or bullied or cyber bullied and so forth. But when you get to be my age, 32 years in the business, gone through... Graduate school, all the different things that I've done in my career, including my 11 day stint in the White House and the epic fail of that, frankly, you learn to take things in stride and you can never control your past. So don't spend too much time thinking about it. You know, work on the future. You know, today's a great day. And even though we're living in a pandemic right now, use history as your guide. We will get out of the pandemic. Just stay safe, keep your family healthy. And when the pandemic ends, Although there'll be a big opportunity on the other side of it. And you guys are just talking about technology. There's going to be a quantum leap in computational capabilities. There's the advent 4G going to 5G is a transformational thing in terms of the bandwidth and throughput of communication that's going to take place. So we're about to embark upon another great cycle of technological innovation for man and womankind. And so that's a lot to look forward to. So never never let the turkeys get you down, basically. You know? I got fired, I shrugged it off, made a couple of jokes about it and I moved forward.
0: Right, and I did some quick math and I believe that on the day that we're recording this, August 10th, 2020, it turns out that there have been approximately 1,100 days since July 31st when you left the White House. So that means we just passed your sort of hundredth, scaramoochieth, anniversary, if that makes sense. So, yeah. so that's just an interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. So my final question, and this is something I ask all my guests is yeah. now that you've had all this experience in finance and experience obviously with politics too, but just all this experience that you've gained in finance, economics, learning about other people, what are some of the lessons that you've passed on to your own children about money? And uh, mm-hmm. what what advice do you have for students? I know you've mentioned quite a bit of advice already, but sort of like a synthesis of all that. I'm going to be very blunt, very honest about this, you know so my children have a different relationship with money than I have,
2: because so I didn't have any growing up, and my family was in the middle class, but we were watching the money very carefully, and we were on a very, very tight budget and so we learned to deal with things differently, you know we didn't have you know we had air conditioning, but we gotta put the air conditioning into the window and take it out of the window at the end of the summer. And you know, listen, nothing nothing wrong with that. My kids grew up with central air conditioning. You know, my kids grew up with more than one house that they could go to. You know, they have a summer house and they have a, a ski house and they have a regular house. You know, and so the point being is that they have a different relationship with money than I did. They're a little bit safer in their minds, a little bit more secure with money. But the flip side is I have to teach them how to make it so that they can always be prosperous. They can always make sure that their standard of living can be met by the money that they have. And so here's the three things that I would say. Number one, you have to be a saver. You have to live below your means. Number two, you have to understand those laws of compounding. You have to understand that if you get a 7% return, you're going to double your money every 10 or so years. A 10% return, you're going to double it every 7.2 years. And if you can double your money, okay, and you can double your money three times in 30 years, and you're a good saver, you know, you, you're going to do very, very well in your life. And so I'm going to recommend a book to you guys, not one of my own, called The Richest Man in Babylon. And it was written by George Clayson, C-L-A-S-O-N. And certainly Howard Marks, I'm an investor of Howard's. I think he's a brilliant guy. You should read his books as well. But this book is a very basic book about how to think like a rich person and what do rich people do to stay rich and what do, people, which, what do rich people do to become rich. It's only about a 200-page book, and I would recommend it to everybody that's listening to your podcast. It, was a big, it had a big impact on me when I was a kid.
0: Well, with that, I want to say thanks so much for being on the podcast. It was really thrilled to have you on, and we look forward to having you back on in the future.
2: I hope I can come back, and thank you guys for having me, and I wish you guys great success.
0: Rajan, I thought that was a very enlightening conversation. What were some of the key takeaways you got from it?
1: Well, the first takeaway is that hedge funds are a lot simpler to understand than most people think. At their core, they're just another type of fund that is allowed to make investments in a more diverse range of assets rather than just be limited to traditional stocks and bonds. That said, because they're allowed to invest in riskier investments, only richer people who can afford to lose
0: money can invest in those hedge funds. Exactly. Another takeaway is that hedge funds are kind of like startups. A lot of them fail because they aren't just funds but also businesses that need to pay the fund managers and cover expenses. They fundamentally make money by taking a certain percentage of the returns they get and a certain percentage of the assets they manage. I think Anthony did a good job explaining that point.
1: Right. And the industry for hedge funds is very competitive as a result. Every hedge fund wants to deliver better returns, but only the best ones with truly incredible money managers can. Some hedge funds borrow money and use leverage to amplify returns. But the flip side is that if you use leverage and you fail to make enough money to pay it back, then your fund goes under. Anthony's fund is just one example of a successful fund that's been around many years, and many other successful funds exist, but the vast majority of
0: hedge funds end up losing out to the market. Another takeaway from this is that hedge funds might be the most creative type of fund. Not only do they have the ability to invest in many different types of assets, but they can also structure themselves in interesting ways. The fund I mentioned, KOTU, is a hybrid between a hedge fund and a venture capital fund. But regardless of the structure, it matters more who the actual people are managing the money. You want to make sure that they're responsible, intelligent, and have integrity. That's something that also applies to life in general, but it is especially important when looking at hedge funds. Overall,
1: hedge funds are an incredibly interesting space in the financial world, where some of the great investors we know today have made their money. They've been growing to manage a lot of money, and they employ some of the smartest people in all of finance. Whether you want to work at one in the future, or just want to know what they are, knowing how hedge funds think and operate is important to understanding the world of finance.
0: I couldn't agree more. Well, Rajan, it was great to have you on as a co-host today on this historic episode. I look forward to having you on in future episodes and best of luck with the rest of freshman year, man.
1: Of course. Thanks for having me on today, Rohan. It was awesome. Best of luck at USC as well.
0: Hey guys, I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. It truly means the world to us. If you like this episode and others, Let us know by subscribing and giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts and following us on Spotify. Share us with your friends and check us out on Instagram and Twitter, both at StreetFins. You can also follow me on Twitter at Rohan Invest. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email fspodcast at streetfins.com. Again, that's fspodcast at streetfins.com. Thanks once again to the incredible Anthony Scaramucci for his insights today. I hope you understand the world of hedge funds in a more simplified way. You can check him out on Twitter at Scaramucci and check out his book called The Little Book of Hedge Funds that was mentioned in the episode. The link's in the description. Once again, we're really happy that you're taking the initiative to learn finance and to better your future. If you haven't already, we highly encourage you to check out StreetFins.com for articles, videos, and other content. Join the StreetFins community and tell your friends about us so that they can learn about finance too. We'll talk to you next time on Finance Simplified.